Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. It's good to see you all this morning, and uh, I don't know about you, but as they've been announcing the, uh, the spring clean coming up in the next month, I can almost feel the anticipation rising in the room. I know some of you are chomping at the bit to get into these corners. It's like the spirit of Kim Woodburn is kind of starting to rise, rise up in some of you. When I, was a, when I was a young lad in church, they taught me that there were three different types of bones in church. There's the ass bones that sit around and do nothing. There's the jaw bones that they say they're going to do lots of things, but do nothing. And then there's the backbones that do everything. And uh, it's great to be part of a church that's full of backbones, as it seems. But I want to ask you a question as we begin this morning, and it's this. What do you do um, after Easter? Because I don't know about you, but for me already, it feels like Easter happened about a month ago. So all that trudging through Lent, and then uh, walking through Holy Week, Week, and then sitting with red eyes on Good Friday, and then running with the women from the tomb on Easter Sunday. And yet now today, somehow it feels as far away as ever. So all the Easter flowers have died, and uh, the Easter eggs have been eaten. And this shirt tells the tale uh, on my behalf as well. Um, All the big crowds have gone. And what do you do now after Easter? Well, did you know that this Sunday is typically known among some clergy as Low Sunday? So low, low Sunday happens twice a year, the Sunday after Christmas and the Sunday after Easter, when attendance at church is expected to be at a low and it's anticipated to be very thin on the ground. And so some churches go all out for this Sunday. They plan events, not for Easter, but for the Sunday after Easter to try and boost the crowds and not be embarrassed at the slump in attendance. Everything from drama skits to bringing in celebrity Christians you know, um, professional athletes and beauty queens and people who can yo-yo while they read the Bible. <laughs> and I understand that because it's hard to sustain the enthusiasm of Easter after Easter's over. So remember last week, the shouts of joy, he is risen indeed, and the songs of victory and all of that. It's hard to keep that going once you're back to the mill and it's back to business as usual. That can quickly fade. It's like the book I saw once on the shelves of uh, Waterstone that said, after the ecstasy, the laundry. (laughs) And so, what now? What do you do after Easter? Well, that's why in the church, in the lectionary, in its liturgical calendar, it often selects for this post-Easter season a series of readings from the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is a book book that wants to let us know that Easter didn't stop last week. That Easter wasn't a just once-for-all occasion, but that it keeps happening over and over and over again in a thousand different ways and varieties, if only we had the eyes to see it. And so today, I'm going to select one of these passages from the book of Acts, and I'm absolutely delighted about it, because if you were to ask me what is my personal favorite story in the whole Bible, next to the parable of the prodigal son, I would say this would be it. And over and over again, I retreat to it to find strength and comfort. And so if you have your Bible with you, we're going to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. And if Stephanie was here this morning, she'd be saying, don't let this be a a sneaky opportunity to check out your Instagram. 
But Acts chapter 8. And if you'll indulge me, or at the very least, if I could beg your pardon, I'm going to read this to you this morning from the King James Version. I was brought up on the King James Bible. I kind of cut my teeth on it. And if you're not used to it, well, it's the version of the Bible that is old and grumpy, <laughs> but at the same time is very ornate and poetic. So for me, having the King James Bible is like having an old gr grumpy grandparent in the house that you can't help but they snuggle up to and love every now and then. <laughs> and so Acts chapter 8, let's, let's begin to read. It'll be on the screen behind me from verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goes down unto Jerusalem, unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Kandake, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I'm sure most of us this week have been following uh, Mr. Biden on his trip through Ireland, back through his homestead. And I'm sure you heard on the news him speak about the heritage and about the history and about the American love for the Irish. And we were all over the news this week. We were on the spotlight and everyone all around the world was doting on the Irish. And as I was listening on the news, I thought, what a far cry from the days when just a little over 100 years ago, there was little signs posted in the corners of shop windows and B&Bs which read, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Apparently it was a commonplace thing. 
And even in parts of the U.S., in Boston and elsewhere, up until as recently as the late 1800s, there was a slogan that was often viewed, abbreviated to the little uh, letters NINA, N-I-N-A, which read, No Irish Need Apply. And across the board, there was widespread anti-Irish sentiment. And as I was watching them parade through Dundalk and so on, I thought how the tables have turned. And every generation has their own exclusive lists. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of it, then you'll know how awful it can be. Because is there any more painful word than the word excluded? Is there any more wonderful word than the word included? Some of you may already know this, but on the day when the church got born, Pentecost, for a good long while, it stayed stubbornly, stubbornly among one group of people. For a few years, it remained 99.9% Jewish. Even though the mandate was, take this out to every nation, it remained among one homogenous group. And they had their own lists of exclusion. But then, of course, the inevitable happened and the gospel began to uh, break out of that restriction on the left hand and on the right. And at the start, they tried to maybe ignore it, but then it got so big and so blatant that they had to deal with it. And so in the book of Acts, we read how the church had a big meeting. It was a big, cold church meeting. Now, if you've ever been to a church business meeting before, you'll know how tense they can get. Perhaps there are no more... Uh, incendiary meetings than church meetings. In fact, I've been to one where people almost came to blows before. It's heightened. It's very confrontive. And I don't know about you, but I don't do well in those kind of settings. I'd rather go shopping for shoes and come back and say, oh, how did it go? I wish I'd been there. And so the meeting was called, and this was a single-issue meeting, Luke says. It was a single-issue meeting. The issue was clear. Shall we admit into full standing and equal fellowship of the church foreigners, persons who have never belonged to the people of Israel, who do not know the Old Testament, who yesterday were bowing before shrines and idols, who do not have the ethical, moral standards of Israel, who do not know the traditions of the Exodus, Shall we simply upon their repentance and confession of faith admit them into equal fellowship? Is that enough? That was the question. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says in his own modest way that there was much debate. He says, indeed, there was no small dissension that arose among them. And it wasn't simply that Christians, and they were all Christians, it wasn't simply that Christians were disagreeing with other Christians, but individual Christians were disagreeing with themselves. Their hearts were torn. And remember this, next time you see a preacher on the street, remember this. Sometimes whenever we lash out at someone else because of their position, the reason for the intensity is that I am at war with my own self. And when I'm at war with my own self, then my tendency is to make casualties out of others, even of those that I love. And that certainly was the case with Simon Peter. Do you know in the day of Pentecost when it all got started, it was Peter that was the front face. It was the Peter that was the lifted up voice 
We're told there was a big crowd in the, in the, in the city. They'd come from all arts and parts, all from everywhere. There, there were Parthians there and Medes and Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia from every nation under heaven. And as Peter was preaching, he got carried away in his oratory, got carried away in the emotion of the moment. And he said at the end of his sermon, the promise of what I'm preaching about here is unto you and your children and your children's children and to all that are afar off, Gentiles, as many as God will call. And what a great moment it was. And he opened wide the door and it was so wonderful. And then a little while later, God came to him in a vision and asked him to go to the house of the Gentile, an Italian, and speak to him. And Peter said no. See, it's one thing to preach. It's another thing to do. It's one thing to have your voice heard in a crowd that disagrees with you. It's another thing to find yourself in a gathering where everyone agrees with you. Has that ever happened to you before? You know, maybe you've held on to a minority position and you were kind of pleased that you held this minority position and then you went to an assembly where everyone agreed with you and it scared you. That can be a frequent thing. And Peter was divided in his own heart because it's one thing to say with your head, we should include these people. It's another thing to believe with your heart, we should include these people. And sometimes the longest journey that you'll ever take in your life is from your head to your heart. And Luke says in between, there was much debate and no small dissension. And so they argued back and forth and they called this big meeting and I, and I imagine kind of in my mind like a big large conference room and just a forest of microphones up at the front. And one by one they came up to posture their position. Shall we admit to the church foreigners? Yes, microphone three. Well, we're here from Antioch, one of the first churches that ever got planted outside of Jerusalem. And we have a really good Bible study group. We meet on a Tuesday night Super 6 Bible class. And we've been studying lately the book of Ezra, and we all believe the Bible. And we've been reading Ezra, and Ezra, Ezra, Ezra says, get rid of the foreigners. Even if you're married to one, here's your opportunity. Get rid of her, divorce her. <laughs> That's all I want to say. Thank you. <laughs> Microphone two. We'll hear from you now. Well, we also have a nice church. We have a wonderful Bible study group. We're from Berea. We've called our Bible class the Berean Bible Buddies. <laughs> and we've been studying Ruth lately. What a wonderful woman is Ruth, the Moabites. And she was the ancestress of David, and as you know, the ancestor of our, ancestors of our Lord. And we think if our Lord had Moabitish blood in his veins, then isn't it okay for us to do this? Thank you. Microphone five. Well, I don't know, but... One of the really great prophets of Israel was Amos. And Amos said, talking to the Jews, Amos said, you alone, you, he didn't say etc. He said, you alone have I chosen out of all the nations of the world to be my people. Thank you. Microphone 9. Well, I don't know that much, but I remember a verse that we were taught in Sunday school. I think it comes from Zechariah. And he said, that the mountain of the Lord's house is going to be the highest of all, and all the nations, all the nations, I think it says, all the nations shall flow into it. Thank you. 
Oh my giddy aunt. All these Bible positions, I'd rather be shopping for shoes. So whose fault is it? Whose fault is this? I mean, here's the church that's doing so well, start off with thousands and thousands on the day of Pentecost, spread out from Jerusalem to the countryside, doing great, got little congregations popping up everywhere. And now this issue, come right and going to split us right down the middle, just when everything's going so well. Whose fault is this? You know whose fault I think it is? I think it's Stephen's. See, when he made that speech up against the, the temple in Jerusalem, that's what started it. Now, he was appointed to wait tables, but he wanted to preach. Everybody wants to preach. That's what started it. He was the one that kicked the rock that brought the avalanche down. No, no, I, I don't think so. I think it was Philip. Because Philip, of his own accord, he went up there and he baptized them Samaritans, them half-breeds, them half-castes. And you know what happens when you let the Samaritans in? The camel's nose is in the tent. Oh, no, no, I, I think it's really the fault of Paul. Paul running around here claiming this vision, claiming to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. And he just lets everybody in, just lets them all oh, come on, on ahead, in, lets them all in. Look at his churches sitting there in their pews, holding their Bibles upside down. Don't know a chorus from a hymn, don't know an introit from a benediction. Just lets them all in. That's what turned it all sour. No, no, I really think the fault is Barnabas's. You know, we'd all agreed up in Jerusalem that if Paul ever shows up, he's not to preach. Oh, yeah, he can fellowship with us at the Lord's Supper. He can maybe give the benediction, but he's not to preach. But Barnabas took him around and worked him in, and pretty soon he's preaching. Now, Barnabas should not have done that. Whose fault is it? Luke says, Luke says, the fault is God's. That God sent the Holy Spirit to push and shove the church. To push and shove, push and shove. Beyond ethnic borders, beyond national borders, beyond social borders, beyond economic borders. That repentance and forgiveness be preached to all nations. And the Spirit pushed and pushed and pushed. And it was painful. But you know, every once in a while, Luke turns the camera around. And instead of giving us this painful pushing scene of the Holy Spirit, moving the church beyond its own prejudice, once in a while, Luke turns the camera around and he lets it focus on one of those outsiders. One of those individuals whose future is at stake. One of those people whose fate is being decided by the church. Will we let them in or will we not let them in? You see, it's one thing to talk about inclusion and welcome in the abstract, but it's another thing when you put a face to it and when it becomes your friend, your brother, your son, your daughter. And so Luke turns the camera around. What does it mean to the person standing outside there waiting upon the word of the church? How did it go? Will I be welcome or will I not? And the strangest of all the stories Luke tells is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot from Jerusalem to Gaza to whom Philip spoke. Now I want you to think about three things to do with this eunuch today. First of all, when it says he was an Ethiopian, we're not sure if Luke meant us to take that literally or not. 
because in the ancient world, in ancient literature, Ethiopia was used as a sort of a nickname for the ends of the earth. So it kind of meant the extremity or the jumping off place. Our modern equivalent today might be Timbuktu. When I was growing up, I didn't know if Timbuktu was a real place or not. But sometimes I'd hear my mom say, I don't care if you can go to Timbuktu for all I care. <laughs> it just meant as far as you can go and then a little further. Well, back then, Ethiopia, it just meant the threshold to an entirely undiscovered world. In fact, the word Ethiopia literally means a burnt face, dark skin. So here you have someone beyond the borders of the civilized world, a foreigner just as far out and as distant as you can get. That's the first thing. Second thing about him is that we're informed his job was a very lucrative one. He was a man of great authority under the kingdom of Queen Kandake. He had the treasure of, had the charge of all her treasure. He was the finance minister. He was the chancellor of the exchequer of the kingdom. And so immediately we learned that he was a very powerful man of rank and status. And then thirdly, and this is something that Luke tells us five times, as if to underscore it, as if to say this was his central designation. Not his name, not, not, we're not given, not his nationality, not his job, but this fact, he was a eunuch. Now, some may ask, what is a eunuch? <laughs> I was once asked that in a youth group, and they said, is it the same thing as a unicorn? <laughs> and I have to say, it's precisely the opposite to a unicorn, and then watches their mind kind of boggled. <laughs> but one commentary that I read put it this way, a eunuch was someone who lacked a functioning phallus of generative capabilities. That's a wordy way of saying a eunuch was a neutered man. A eunuch was someone who either by surgery or accident or possibly choice had been rendered sexless. A hybrid, a non-binary, a gender transgressor, someone who just upset the blue-pink status quo. Now usually we're told such persons found gainful employment and indeed very powerful, wealthy employment in palaces and in the services especially of queens. And you have to just read the book of Esther to discover that to be so. Because they were deemed to be safe to work among the harem. They wouldn't be derailed by their own private interests or by their sexual libido. They could be devoted, single-minded, loyal, considered very useful in their roles. According to Plutarch, it was a very common thing in the ancient world. But it could also be a very tragic thing. Because remember what the Jewish scriptures said, they were very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. The eunuch shall not be permitted in the assembly of the people of God. Any questions? The eunuch shall not be permitted in the assembly of the people of God. They weren't allowed to approach the Lord's altar. They could not come within the sacred assembly. Indeed, they were considered to be living violations of the purity codes of Israel. And so therefore, public worship was prohibited for them. Therefore, what on earth does it mean when it says in the text here, he'd been up to Jerusalem to worship? I mean, what kind of man is this that will walk around the outside, stand at the edge, look over the fence, say to the people coming through the door, what's going on? 
How was the service? How was the sermon? What did the priest do? Were there many people there today? Looking through knot holes, getting all the stuff secondhand, looking over fences, walking the edge of the crowd. What does this mean? Why will any human being continue to lock, knock at a locked door and stand there with bloody knuckles and refuse to go home? Why? I mean, can't you read the text? It's pretty clear. The door is locked. Shall I read it again? You're not welcome. Why doesn't he just make it easy on himself? I mean, is he one of these people who kind of think that because you've risen to a certain level of power and wealth and affluence that the rules don't apply to you anymore? He is a wealthy man. He has his own Bible. He's riding in a chariot. He's a treasurer of the country. Do you think that that could make him some kind of an exception? I'm sorry, but no. I mean, even if we could kind of slip you in the back here, even if a blind usher was to somehow mistakenly open the door and let you in, once you got in, it would be clear that you don't fit in. You stick out like a sore thumb. No, you can't come in. So can you feel the implicit tragedy here? Because throughout his entire life, it never has been a question of who he is, but a question of what he is. A double outsider. Number one, a Gentile. Number two, a eunuch. And for the believing community, that meant inferior. It meant unequal. It meant damaged goods. And there was nothing he could do to change that fact because like most units, he'd been that way from childhood. And here he is now and he's come to worship and he, he wants to worship. But all he can do is linger at the edges of the people of God with that verse from Deuteronomy staring at him day and night. The eunuch is not permitted. And yet, <laughs> for some reason, he won't let it go. He, he just won't walk away completely because we're told as he's coming back down the road, no doubt with a punctured spirit, he has the scroll of Isaiah out, open in his lap, and he's reading it. And I'll tell you why. Because he's doing something that all of us do. He's doing something that you do, something that I do. He's flipping the pages of the Bible to try and find his own name there. You know, everybody in the world does that. Everybody wants a verse to say, that's for me. And then to write their name, or their date in the margin, or maybe a little, a little asterisk, just a wee phrase, just a promise, just something. He's looking for his name. When was the last time you walked out of church and you said to your friend as you walked through the door, that was for me today. I remember about five or six years ago, I was giving a talk in church one Easter. And the subject was on Doubt and Thomas. And it was only partway through the talk whenever I heard a bit of a commotion at the back. And I noticed that someone had come in late and uh, I couldn't quite make out what was going on. But I did hear a voice that seemed to be speaking in a foreign accent. And it was saying, me, me, me. Anyway, quieting down, and afterwards, after the service was over, one of the elders approached me and he said, did you know what happened there? I said, no, and he said, pointing to this disheveled-looking fella sitting at the back, he said, that guy there came into the service late. He's Polish. And he wondered if it was okay for him to come in because he says he thinks he's an atheist, but that he'd like to try it out. Do you know what his name is? Thomas. And there was me talking on... Down Thomas. 
And you know, we became friends after that, and I got him a Bible in Polish. And he wanted to me to mark out for him all the passages where Doubt and Thomas was recorded in the Gospels. It's something we all do. You read a line, and you want to say, that's for me. Mind you, sometimes in our zeal we can overdo it. Maybe we can end up a little bit misguided. I remember, and this is a good while ago now, but there was a certain girl, and she was convinced that it was the Lord's will for her and I to marry. But I wasn't convinced at all. <laughs> and she said to me, no, but soon you will be. And looking at me with level gaze, she said, because I've been praying about this. And I went to a meeting last night, and the preacher announced this text, and do you know what it was? Luke chapter 1, verse 20, 63. His name shall be called John. <laughs> and I nearly collapsed right on the spot. Be careful you don't overdo it. And so the eunuch was looking to find something just for him. Something that would give him hope. Something that he could mark with an asterisk or put a date beside and say, that's for me. And he finds it. Or he thinks he finds it. And it's from Isaiah, and it's no surprise to me he's reading Isaiah, one of the most hopeful books in the Old Testament, because it almost sounds too good to be true. Because listen, it'll come up in the back. It says in Isaiah, No longer let the stranger say, The Lord has separated me from his people. No longer let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me. And take a hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And there it is in black and white, the promise of welcome. The promise of not being cut off. Here was a man who'd been cut off, so to speak. And God turned it around and used it as a pun and said, and I'll not cut you off. And he's reading himself into the text. This is what Isaiah says. But then, this is what Deuteronomy says. Something altogether different. And what do you do whenever the Bible that you love says one thing in one place? and another thing in another place, and your whole life hangs in the balance. Which one is it? Is it Deuteronomy or is it Isaiah? Is he in or is he out? Is he welcome or is he not? If all he has is these two verses, it could be argued either way. Which one is right? Well, how can he understand unless there's someone to guide him? And what he needs is someone who not only knows the Scripture, but someone who knows the God of the Scripture. Someone who has a relationship with that God. He needs someone to teach him, and not just in a kind of cold, doctrinal, clinical kind of detached way, but he needs someone who him, himself in his own life has felt the embrace of God. And he can read the cold ink on the page in the warm light of God's Spirit. In other words, he needs a Philip to guide him. And so he's going along in this chariot, down the desert road to Gaza. And he's reading more of Isaiah, and he's reading it out loud, because that's what they did in those days. They read it out loud. And he's reading, and he said, I think this, this, this is the bit I'm really stuck on. As a lamb led to the slaughter, 
as a sheep before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And who will declare his generation? Because he's cut off out of the land of the living. And of course he's stuck there because it relates to him. No children. No one to remember him. No one to declare his generation. No one to carry on his name. Denied justice. Of course it relates. And he's stuck there. And it was at that point that Philip comes running alongside the chariot. And I imagine him kind of knocking on the window pane. Hey, do you, do you understand what you're reading out loud? He says, no, I've got nobody to help me. And Philip says, well, if you'll slow down a bit, I'll help you. And amazingly, he invites Philip, this perfect desert, disheveled stranger, up into his pristine chariot to sit with him and to explain it all as they bob along the desert trail. Ah, oh, can you see it in your mind's eye? These two men, they're poles apart. One's a Jew, one's a Gentile. One's a prominent diplomat that concerns himself with banks and money and bills and all of that. One's really only a humble street preacher. One's a eunuch. The other's a family man, a father of four daughters. And they sit together in the moving chariot for a little in-depth Bible study. And the eunuch says, Philip, this verse here, is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And Philip says, oh, let me tell you who that is. That's Jesus. And I love verse 35. It said he opened his mouth and he preached unto him, Jesus. And it was the first time he'd ever heard that name. And I've had an experience like that recently. Some of you, or probably all of you, will know by now that I work in a children's detention center. And in the last few months, I've had the opportunity to start a chapel on a Sunday night. And the young people come over in small groups and sometimes they have to be bribed with triple chocolate brownies. But I mean, that's okay. They're teenagers after all. But they come. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a wee lad came in. He's barely 13. He looks like he's just come out of primary school. Romanian. His eyes are like two dark pools of mud. Big cows lick on the top of his head. Frightened. Nervous. And he came over to the little chapel in the evening. And I was explaining to him the story of Zacchaeus up the tree. And he burst out loud in front of everyone in the group and he said, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone talking about Jesus. And I went to see him this week in his unit and he said, is the prayer meeting on tonight? And I said, it's not on tonight, but it will be on in a, in a wee while, in a few days. And he said, and the, one of the care staff that heard him, she said to him, oh, I didn't, his name's Cosmine. She said, Cosmine didn't know that you were religious. And he said, I'm not. And then he said this, but I like to hear stories about Jesus. And here was Philip, and he talked and talked about Jesus. What he, who he was, and what he was like, and how he suffered, and what he did, and what he spoke, and how, in the end, justice was denied to him. And then the great vindication that came. And as the eunuch listened, something incredible happened in his heart. His spirit got touched. And as he listened, he began to dream. And he got emboldened. Emboldened enough to take a chance to ask the question that up until that point he'd never even thought would be possible for him. If perhaps this new way, this grace, this gift, this movement was something that he could be a part of too. 
We're told in the text in verse 36 that when he saw a pool of water nearby, he stopped the chariot. And he turned around and no doubt with pleading in his eyes, he said to Philip, Now Philip, you know who and what I am. I am an Ethiopian. I don't know how you feel about Ethiopians. But up until this point, we've only ever been allowed on the edges. And not only that, but I'm a eunuch. And I know what it says in Deuteronomy. I know we're forbidden. But it also says in Isaiah, no longer let the foreigner say, surely the Lord will say, get out. Don't let the eunuch say anymore, behold, I'm a dry tree. Because I'll remember you and I'll bless you. And you'll be remembered. And it'll be better than children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren forever. And I've listened to you speak about this, Jesus. Do you suppose it's possible? Do you think it might be possible? In spite of who and what I am, that there could be a place for me in all of this? What I'm asking Philip is, is there anything to stop me from being baptized? And he's waiting on the answer now. And I'm sure Philip must have drawn in a deep breath because he knows the risks and implications of that question. According to the old ways and the old system, there's plenty of reasons to stop him being baptized. But if this is all really true, and if Isaiah is right, and if it's time to let those old walls of exclusion and prohibition that have stood for generations to come down, and so he breathed out, and he said, yeah, I can think of a hundred people who are going to be upset, but yeah, I don't know how they're going to take this back home. But yes, in fact, I feel a little awkward myself because I've never been in this situation before. I'm not handling it very well, I think, but, but yes. Indeed, I'm surprised at hearing myself say this, but, but yes. Because the fact of the matter is, who am I to say no when it seems to be absolutely clear that God has already said yes. And the Bible says that the two of them went down into the water and Philip baptized his new friend and brother in Christ. And the eunuch went on his way home rejoicing, no longer tied up in knots. And tradition tells us that he was the first to bring the gospel to Africa. You know, our time is gone. We're going to come up to the table in a moment. The application of this story is so clear I may not need to elaborate very much. I just want to offer two small words in closing for you to take with you into the week. Number one, let me say carefully that the gospel is good news. But if it's not good news for everyone, then it's not good news. I think it was the legend Rachel Held Evans who was taken from this world far too quickly that once said that what makes the gospel so offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. And that starts with you and me, doesn't it? Because if we're not scandalized by the fact that we've been let in, then we've got it all wrong. It's like one time I was complaining to God that someone was saying something about me and I kind of felt them say back, well, at least I don't know the whole truth. 
And I always remember the quote from C.S. Lewis where he said, look, when you get to heaven one day, there will be three surprises. Number one, who's there? Number two, who's not there? Number three, the fact that you're there. <laughs> it should shock us that we've been let in. And that's where the offense has always been right from the days when he walked around Galilee. Who was brought into the embrace of his hospitality? See, the gospel's not so fragile that it can't handle our differences. Jesus did not come to preserve our prejudices, to ensure that boys always wear blue and girls always wear pink. But he died to start a new family in which, as Paul tells us, there's Jew and Greek, male and female, bond and free, gay and straight, black and white. And some folks might take that for granted, and if maybe that's so because you've always known what it's like to be on the ground of privilege and power, but for some of us, that's really good news. Because at the cross, the ground is level. And that's the first thing, and then the last thing I want to say is this. That sometimes God does God's best work down the desert road. You know, what I love so much about this story is that the Holy Spirit pursued this man. He was like target A. He chased him down like we were singing in that song. Here he is feeling so excluded, so unwanted, damaged goods, bludgeoned over the head by the law and centuries of tradition and exclusion. And the Spirit pursues him, chases him down, down into a dirt track, down into the desert, into the wilderness, into the middle of absolute nowhere. Who on earth would ever have thought? You know, I reckon if the disciples of Philip had have taken bets as to who the Holy Spirit would lead them to next, never in a million years would they ever have thought to this individual because he was absolutely on the margins. But it's the nature of the Holy Spirit to be unruly like that and invasive and gregarious and ubiquitous. And look at me like someone having swallowed the dictionary. It's in his nature to show up where people say he never will and to bring them the good news of the gospel, to let them know that they're wanted, to let them see that their names are there, that they are loved. And maybe some of you today are in a desert, so to speak. You're in a drought. You're in a place that's parched and thirsty. And you too have experienced some of that pain and that dejection and that sense of being unwelcome. But maybe today as you sit here, you kind of can feel that hot pursuit over your life as well. You know, over Easter, I read something that the Pope said. And if my wee Pentecostal granny knew that I was quoting the Pope today, she'd be spitting in her grave. <laughs> but she said something that, he said something that struck me profoundly. He said, did you know that God is the God of hope? And that if God hopes, then no one should ever lose hope. Because hope is the strength to keep going forward. And that sustains me a lot in my own life and in the work I get to do. To be in a desert place and to open the windows and to let the hope in. Because it's been done for me and now I get to do it for others. And I don't know exactly where you are today in your life, but I hope that you'll let the hope of this story rub itself into your soul and open up a bubbling spring in your desert. Let's all pray together.
Lord, we just thank you today that uh, the only qualifier to come to you is to feel our need of you. We thank you that it's wider than we could imagine. It's bigger than we could dream. We thank you that your irresistible grace is the most fabulous thing we've ever heard in our whole lives. And I pray today if there's any and the feel that stirring deep inside, that this very day that kind of hope would get born inside of them. Lord, let us be hungry as we come to your table now. Help us to know that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray.